Hello and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. For those of you tuning in for the first time, this podcast is a project by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. One of four hosts serve as interlocutor, engaging in conversations with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. My name is Caroline Stoffer, and I am one of your hosts. I serve as the community chair for the Women in Dispute Resolution and co-chair the educational subcommittee of the international section. Today, I'm sitting down with Christy Hirschman, Kate Burkhart, and Ken Skodacek to have a roundtable discussion about Ombuds Day and the role of a classical ombudsman. It is a pleasure to have you on our program today. Ken, Kate, Christy, so glad to talk about ombudsmen and the roles that they play in the ADR community. I know that for those who are listening, Ombuds Day is Thursday, October 14th, and we have Ken who will provide us with a sneak peek about that day and to have a roundtable discussion about the different types of ombuds roles and to focus on the classical ombuds work of Christy and Kate. So to get us started, Ken, can you tell us a little sure. bit more about Ombuds Day? Sure, sure, of course. So again, my name is Ken Skodacek. I'm the chair of the American Bar Association's Ombuds Day subcommittee. I also happen to be an ombuds uh, that works in a federal agency. Uh, thanks for providing the date. Again, it's the second Thursday of the month of October every year. So this year that corresponds to October 14th. Uh, ombuds Day was started and recognized by ABA in 2018. So this is the fourth annual or fourth year that we're recognizing the event. And uh, basically the, there are four primary goals of Ombuds Day, and that's to improve uh, public awareness just in general. Uh, that means educating the public about the role of Ombuds, explaining the wide variety of services that Ombuds provide, encouraging greater use of Ombuds programs and services, and highlighting the value that Ombuds bring institutions and to the institutions and the constituents that they serve. And the secondary goals of Ombuds Day are basically to connect Ombuds in their respective communities and to recognize their important work. Uh, mainly what we're trying to do is help Ombuds that are working in their local organizations or their local communities, help them recognize Ombuds Day as well. So there is a toolkit and a variety of resources that are available uh, at ombudsday.com. So we have that name, ombudsday.com. Uh, and in addition, we've been working to obtain state proclamations from all 50 states. And then we have a very large uh, virtual event uh, scheduled uh, on October 14th, so the morning of Ombuds Day. And that event will include panelists, and maybe it's a discussion very similar to like this one, uh, but we'll have panelists from the technology sector, uh, panelists from the immigration sector, uh, panelists from the K-12 education sector, and panelists from the long-term care and assisted living sector. So basically, why we wanted to have different types of ombuds, as there are three different types of ombud services. There's sort of the classical, organizational, and advocate. Today, we'll be talking more about the classical ombuds. Uh, and basically, to help everyone understand what ombuds day is, I will mention that a lot of times in all the conversations that I'm in with people, people mispronounce ombudsman or ombudsman all the time. And so that's why we selected Ombuds Day versus Ombudsman Day, because it can be a little bit confusing. 
and you'll you'll probably find yourself stuttering if you're not used to saying ombudsman over and over again. You'll find yourself stuttering over the words. Uh, in in general, I just like to you know highlight that what we're really trying to do is make ombuds uh, a part of a, con a normal conversation. Uh, I've had people introduce me at meetings, and sometimes they mispronounce my last name. And when they're giving an introduction, they'll stumble when they're trying to pronounce my last name. But in fact, the more presentations that I give, they actually stumble upon trying to pronounce ombudsman when they're stunning out. And I find it hilarious every time. So segueing into some of the things you were talking about, if, if you know, Christy, Kate, Ken, if one of you could just touch on about, you know, the differences between these types of roles in the ombuds community, traditional sense or the classical role, the organizational and the advocate, could you share a little bit more about that? So this is Kate. Um, in Alaska, we have all those versions. So um, the advocacy role of an ombudsman we see in our long-term care ombudsman who has responsibility for advocating for residents of long-term care facilities like assisted living homes and nursing homes. So their role is to listen to the resident, take the resident's perspective and position to the facility and advocate for the resident. Um, organizational Ombudsman, we have those um, in our federal agencies and in some of our corporations that do business in Alaska, like BP has a, a corporate ombudsman. Um, our universities have student ombudsmen who kind of blend the role of advocate and dispute resolution. Um, and then we have the classical ombudsman, both at the statewide level, that's my office, and the municipal level, the city of Anchorage has a classical ombudsman. Um, and we are the objective, neutral, um, investigative style of ombudsman. So it, it, I'm getting a sense from you that really the ombuds position can really fit in different types of needs of the community. You have the legislative, you have the organizational, and maybe you might wanna say even at the community level, is that pretty accurate? I mean, we have the version that is at the municipal level. It's still a governmental body, um, and it is within that classical role. I think you're right that it can fit a lot of roles, but there are some specific pillars, and I'm going to throw it to Christy because she knows those pillars better than I do. The um, Yeah, it, it in Iowa also, and, and my office, my former office, I retired a couple weeks ago as, as ombudsman for the state of Iowa. We are a classical office like Kate is. And, and congratulations, um, by the way, Christy. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> but worked in the office almost 26 years. It was a, a very, very rewarding job. Um, but um, yeah, we're a classical ombudsman like Kate. Um, we don't have any municipal level ombudsman. In, in fact, our office has jurisdiction to review complaints about local government entities. So we uh, not only serve as a state ombudsman um, reviewing complaints about executive branch agencies, but also about municipal offices. So, um, and, and as with Kate, there's the long-term care ombudsman who has the advocacy position in the state of Iowa. Uh, the important thing, regardless of, of, of what ombudsman office, um, your, your statute or your mission is the independence um, and the ability to um, review complaints in an, an unbiased uh, manner um, and to be independent, as independent as possible. 
um, to ensure your review of complaints is um, above uh, above question. And that's one of the things that I think is that people find challenging too, right? Is that there are these commonalities between the ombuds program, and there are just some distinctions and the different types of roles. And I think that's why it's a little bit challenging for people to sometimes understand the the role of an ombuds program and what they do, and maybe create some mis misunderstandings or miscommunications about their roles. Yes, and I, I appreciate the highlight that, you know, Kate provided in terms of the different roles. I kind of wanted to know, Kate and Chrissy, what was that journey like for you? Um, well, mine is extremely, uh, I think everybody's is unique. I, I think mine's uh, unique also. Um, I, when I got married uh, 44 years ago, uh, my husband and I were farmers. And then we transitioned into um, commercial composting and we sold the company and the ombudsman's office was looking for someone who had environmental um, permitting experience. And so they were looking for an environmental specialist and um, my uh, degree is in computer programming. <laughs> so um, I, I was hired uh, 20 almost 26 years ago, November 13th, 1995, to be their environmental specialist and, and ended up um, working up through the ranks and, and being appointed ombudsman. Amazing. Well, it seems that it is very rewarding and I can't wait to hear more about that. And, and, and Kate, what was your journey? I started my career as a public interest attorney serving victims of interpersonal violence with a legal services provider in Tennessee. And after a couple of years, was looking for something different and uh, received a job posting for Alaska Legal Services in Nome, Alaska. And I was young and thought that would be an exciting temporary adventure. And that was 20 years ago. Um, since then, I have uh, served as a public interest lawyer with Alaska Legal Services for several years. And then I spent 10 years in public health policy with the state of Alaska, um, primarily focused on behavioral health. And um, in between those, I spent a year at the Ombudsman and realized how valuable and um, just wonderful the work of the Ombudsman is. And so when the previous Ombudsman retired, um, there was an opportunity and um, I was fortunate enough to be appointed in 2017. And this is my first term. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Even, it, it continues to amaze me after 26 years and, and after the amount of publicity our office received with its reports, how many people still don't know what we do. I, I always joked, and my mother, bless her soul, I, I would send her our annual reports every year, and um, I, I still say she still wasn't convinced what I did was legal. I mean, people just don't <laughs> understand. A lot of people don't understand what we do, much less can pronounce the word. <laughs> well, what is it that you do in, in your role and what kind of level of conflicts have you dealt with throughout your career? What does that look like the day to day? Well, I, from our perspective, um, Iowa, uh, we have uh, the ability to, we have access to confidential records even without a subpoena, but we do have subpoena authority. We can put people under oath. Um, and the variety of complaints that we handle, uh, it's 
an extremely broad spectrum. It can be something as simple as it's answering a question, uh, finding a resource for an individual. I had a, a man from Northwest Iowa call me a number of years ago and his daughter wanted him to do a benefit auction. He was an auctioneer for her church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And Minnesota licenses, auction, licenses auctioneers and Minnesota said, fine, as long as he can show us he has a uh, license in Iowa. Well, Iowa doesn't license auctioneers. So he was calling all these agencies trying to get a hold of somebody. And if he could, could, could get a hold of somebody, nobody was willing to put in writing that Iowa doesn't license auctioneers. So he called our office. I called the head of the Department of Commerce for the state. And he said, give me his fax number. I'll have him a letter in five minutes. So you have simple things like that. On the other end of the spectrum, um, the example I, I use is uh, it involved a, a child support case where the mother had custody in Colorado. The mother died. The juvenile court opened action um, in Colorado, gave father in Iowa the custody of the child, and son came back to Iowa to live with the father. But Iowa was still trying to collect child support. And he couldn't, uh, because there was a divorce decree out there saying he owed child support. And he couldn't afford to go back to court. So I called the child support office and and um, bless her soul, the, the clerk who I talked to, I said, so I explained the situation. I said, mother's dead, you know, there's no, he's got custody, he's got a juvenile court order saying he's got custody of the child. Uh, what can be done? And, you know, sure, sure as heck, she reads from the manual, well, he can go to court or mother can sign a suspension of the order. So I was able to get the agency to suspend enforcement of the order and subsequently the law has been changed so they can modify um, administratively orders in situations like this. But there's just some things while they may be legal, they just don't make any sense. And that was one of those situations. So it, it, there's a whole spectrum of, of complaints we handle as does Kate. I think all states um, last year the Alaska unemployment program was overwhelmed with demand. So we were getting lots of complaints about it's taking too long to get my unemployment. It's taking too long. I'm not hearing anything. No one's returning my calls. And our staff were able to help people navigate to get the information they needed about the status of their claims. Um, we were actually able to help folks who um, were not able to use the automated system but most of the work we do, no one ever knows about except the people that are directly affected. And honestly, that's where the rubber meets the road, like helping people get those problems resolved as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Is there different interpretations of the ombudsman? And is it, we talked about the pillars. Are there interpretations of, of these core pillars and, and should there be interpretation? So our confidentiality statute says the ombudsman shall maintain confidentiality. Um, it has been interpreted in the past similar to the confidentiality and privilege between um, lawyers and clients to where the complainant could give permission to share information. However, the statute is clear. The ombudsman shall maintain confidentiality. It's not a privilege, it's a requirement of the office. And so over the last few years, we've actually lowered 
the, the doors even further to lock down the information we share. We only share the information absolutely necessary to fulfill our duties. And the reason we're so strict about that is there's lots of people who are terrified to share their, their problems. They fear retaliation. If they're a whistleblower, they fear losing their job. Um, so many of our complaints involve intimate issues of family or incarceration, things you wouldn't want people to know about. And so that confidentiality is to protect their, their concerns and their privacy, but also the integrity of the investigation. And so that's why we have, we have really looked to our statute and we are very strict about our confidentiality. In Iowa, the confidentiality, um, our access to confidential records actually has been challenged um, legislatively, or not legislatively, I'm sorry, in court. Um, and, and we've been successful every time as far as getting access to. But like with Kate, we don't share any more information than we have to. And part of the reason also on that is I think it would, we believe it would have a chilling effect on the complaints that come to our office. So Christy, you said that your confidentiality has been challenged in court. So one thing that has happened several times just in my first term is attempts to get um, the ombudsman to testify about investigations in court. Um, has that happened to, did that happen while you were the Iowa ombudsman and how did you navigate that? Well, it did not happen when I was Iowa ombudsman, but um, it has happened in the past. Um, and you're right, we, we get subpoenas to, to testify in court and we've always been able to successfully quash those subpoenas um, because of the nature of our statutory authority. Is that unique for the traditional role? Is there times where an ombudsman might be subpoenaed uh, in the other types of organizational or in the advocate role? A lot of ombudsmen have uh, information on their websites if that if they if their organization interprets it as that applying to them, say in the K through 12 space or in a university, and they have ways of, of trying to work with individuals to let them know that uh, these are the things that I can keep confidential and these are the limits to that confidentiality in a way that helps the individual that approaches their office or their program uh, know those limits before they engage in further details so that they're, uh, but again, it's, it's, it's controversial in terms of lots of ombuds programs don't see themselves as mandatory reporters, but that doesn't mean that all of their organizations interpret the laws in the same way. Well, I think it's it's important, at least for our program, we are not a mediator. My role is to investigate and based on a preponderance of the evidence, make a finding. The goal is not to find a solution that makes everybody happy. The goal is to make decisions objectively based on the evidence. I could elaborate too on Kate's uh, response. I think part of the challenge is because I'm, I'm also an ombudsman and I also do not serve in the role of a, a mediator. But it's commonly, I think a lot of people refer to ombuds as either facilitating disputes or resolutions of disputes or mediating those disputes in the sort of definition of mediation outside of legal uh, ease, right? So to, to mediate is to intervene between people in a dispute in order to bring about agreement or reconciliation. So in some cases, people are bringing issues to me. I'm raising those issues within my organization. And that is my intervention in helping the two parties find a mutually uh, agreeable solution, but we don't mediate. 
in the formal sense. And I think that's where there's a lot of confusion in the lay public uh, about our role and about, you know, a lot of people don't understand what formal mediation is either unless they've been in that sort of a setting. Our standard practice is we go to the person with the most knowledge about the complaint. So in most cases, that is not the commissioner of a department because they are not in direct contact with the complainant. Um, we have learned that, like Christy talked about, if people see ombudsman on their telephone, they might freak out. Um, so we actually do extensive outreach with frontline staff in the agencies where we're more likely to call them um, so that they understand like, okay, don't freak out. Like look at our data, 50% of the time, we don't find that the agency made a mistake. So a phone call could actually be <laughs> reinforcing to you. Um, <laughs> but we have had to do that like in person before the pandemic, I would go to the offices of the child protection agency around the state and have these meetings with frontline staff and let them yell at me and then explain like, when we call, don't freak out, it'll be fine. Um, and the same with some of our other agencies. Um, we do have agencies that would prefer we didn't do that, but it's not efficient to talk with someone five layers removed from the complaint. And it's also, I don't think reliable to rely on evidence that's been filtered through a supervisory chain. So we do contact, like Ken talked about, the frontline folks first, um, if it's appropriate. Um, but we keep supervisors and leadership in the loop because if there is a big problem, that's who really has to solve it. Um, so there's a balancing act of um, trying to get to the root of the problem and solve it quickly um, versus making sure the agency understands what's going on on a big picture scale and can resolve those bigger problems. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head, uh, Kate, is I, I tell this to agencies too. You <coughs> I, I explain, I give them statistics on how many complaints we don't substantiate. And I say, a lot of times we don't even call you. There's an appeal process that the complainant hasn't taken advantage of and we refer them to that. Um, you know, it's only fair to give the agency the opportunity to resolve the problem if it's not a dire emergency before we get involved. And so, yeah, I, I think that's critically important um, developing the relationships. And, you know, once you develop a track record um, and re those relationships with agencies um, and, and you have to work up the chain of command and, and, you know, the head of the agency gets a call from us, you know, once every two years, they know if we're calling there's a problem and we've identified that problem and we are convinced it's a problem that needs fixing, needs their attention. Um, an example from years ago that I always use, um, I had an inmate um, contact me and, and he'd gotten a, received a disciplinary report for hitting another inmate. And he got 365 days in the hole as a penalty and 365 days loss of earned time, which meant a year added onto his sentence. And he said, I didn't do it. And he exa had exhausted his appeal process within the institution. His next step was to go to court. And we have access to Department of Corrections records on our computers. And I looked at his disciplinary history and it was assault, assault, assault. And I thought, mm. <laughs> but you know, we have to remain unbiased. I said, I would look at all the paperwork and I'll be darned. He had witness statements from officers who were present that said he didn't hit the other guy. Wow. And so I went to the warden of the institution. He said, mm, not changing my mind. Um, and at that time, they had the state 
broke up into the Eastern and Western region for the prison system. And I went to the Eastern regional director and I said, there is no evidence here. Even your own correctional officers are saying this inmate didn't hit the other inmate. And he said, I agree. He let him out of the hole and gave him back his, his year of lost earn time. And well rewarded. I mean, it, that's the part where I think you had mentioned earlier, hey, this is a rewarding career. And doing something like that to benefit somebody who can't be heard, you're, you're giving them the voice at a higher power. Kate, what are some kind of going on that chain of thought of value? You said there's a lot of value in this. Can you share what these values are? Well, I think internal value and, and external value, we look at it in both ways. So we have internal values, like principles. They include curiosity. You can't do this job if you're not curious. Um, that also helps mitigate your biases and tendency to be judgmental because you're curious, you're not judgmental. Um, respect, compassion, integrity, objectivity, those are our core values. Um, where we have a, an additional perspective is we want to be value added, right? We don't want to just do the work and then have nothing come of it. And so the value to the complainants is if they have a legitimate substantiated complaint, there is a high probability we can help resolve it. The value to the agencies is often the root of the problem is lack of resources or a, a weird law or regulation they have to follow that doesn't make sense because it was passed 80 years ago. Um, and we have the ability to make recommendations to change those things. And then there's another area that we haven't talked about, which is all the people who call us and their complaint is not jurisdictional. They're getting evicted or they don't have food because they, the food bank is closed or they, they, they have a problem. Like, I don't know where to take my mom who has dementia. Literally half of the people who call our office are not people with a complaint about a state agency. They have a serious problem they need help with, but it's not about a state agency. And so our intake team does a massive amount of referrals and providing information and transferring the, the call from our office to the Aging and Disability Resource Center so they can talk to somebody about how to get a ramp so they can get into their house. And so that's a huge value to our communities to help people connect to those support organizations and that safety net. Um, in Alaska, we're small enough and our safety net, unfortunately, is small enough that we're able to do that. Um, I'm not sure that in other states that would be possible, but that is an incredibly important part of our work. And we don't really talk about it very much. Um, it can be a, a challenging job. I, I worry constantly about my staff. Um, I know Kate and I have talked about before and Kate, in fact, Kate did a session um, a webinar for the uh, United States Ombudsman's Association uh, several weeks ago on um, trauma and resiliency. Um, you know, our staff sees and hears, as do a lot of professions, the worst of the worst. Um, you know, it. we see, we've done a couple of reports here in the last couple of years on the death of two 16-year-olds. And those um, crime scene photos will be embedded in my brain forever. Mm. Um, you know, there's all of, of those issues. You know, we, I've, I'll never forget 
um, the first time I read a, a report on a gang rape in prison um, and all the details associated with that. There, um, so yeah, there's, there's, uh, we worry, I worry a lot about trauma fatigue and, and um, vicarious trauma. Kate, you, you can talk more about that. You did the webinar yesterday or hosted the webinar yesterday. So um, I had the benefit of years, again, in, in health policy with a lot of focus on, on trauma and trauma-informed care and the impact of trauma in educational systems before I was appointed ombudsman. So I had, I had that benefit. Um, it started because I had several members of staff who clearly had secondary trauma from dealing with complaints like Christy described. And so immediately it was like, all right, we got to deal with that. Um, and so really exploring how to um, develop a practice of trauma stewardship in our programming. Um, we have also blended some of our work around taking care of ourselves and taking care of others. And it gets back to that unreasonable complainant conduct. So a lot of the conduct we see is actually related to the person's mental illness or their own trauma. And so when we can bring that lens, instead of what's wrong with you, what happened to you, to a situation, it actually makes it easier for us to deal with. Um, we have provided mental health first aid training to our staff. Um, and this is a great story if we have time for it. So soon after everybody had mental health first aid, a gentleman came into our Anchorage office and he was at like level 14 of escalation. He was angry and he was loud and he, we think was homeless. And so he presented in a big kind of scary way. <clears throat> and his problem um, seemed a little out there, um, but my intake staff had just had that training. And so the young man at the desk said, the first question he asked after the gentleman took a breath was, have you eaten today? And he said, no. Wow. And Michael, our intake person said, I have a sandwich for lunch. You want half of it? And he gave him half a sandwich. So he sat there and he ate it and he came down to about a level seven and he was able to articulate a very real problem. And once we could hear that through all of that other stuff, it was like, oh yeah, we can fix that. Three phone calls later, he had the money he was entitled to from the state and he was able to move on. And more importantly, mm -hmm somebody listened to him and treated him like a human being. And so not only were we able to take care of him and to demonstrate that compassion and respect and our curiosity that are our core values, but it made it easier for our staff, right? Because they didn't see that as an attack on them, even though he was big and loud and angry. They saw that as, all right, he's in crisis. Is there a way I can help bring that down a little bit? I just kind of want to marinate a little bit in what you said. I mean, it was so fundamental what that gentleman did for the client, asking him, have you eaten today? Such a basic question, but loaded with care and just addressing a basic need. And then from there, listening. Just really fundamental, simple, but so necessary. So I think what you're doing 
in your office is very progressive. And I kind of want to joke around and kind of say, you know, when we think about ombudsman, you're probably thinking, and based off what I hear from you, it's like, what is an ombudsman to an ombudsman's calling me some type of fear there. And then now I'm, I'm thinking an ombudsman is, is, a uh, is MacGyver. And the, <laughs> I mean, it is not for the faint of heart. You have to be crafty um, and think on your toes. I mean, not, not think on your toes, but on your feet. So it, it's amazing the work that, that you're doing. And I, I appreciate you giving your insight. It's very exciting and very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, have, I have something to add is, Kate, I think, uh, you know, I talked about increasing awareness of Ombuds program and understanding. I think you should reach out to the Snickers Corporation and feature <laughs> what happened in a Snickers commercial. Because at the end of the day, it's that sort of compassion that people would appreciate. And I think they would uh, more likely engage in Ombuds program when they understand the training that people get and the passion. And, and I like what is it? It's not just hard work, but it's heart work. You know, it's, it's that sort of understanding of what the Ombuds programs provide that's really, really important. I became an Ombudsman in 2018, right before Ombuds Day right before the annual conference of the Coalition of Federal Ombudsmen. And I was, uh, although I was interested in the position, uh, I was interested in the people. I was amazed at the people and the compassion that they have and the expertise that they bring. And I think that's what sort of, it's, it's the ombuds community that I think is really, really powerful. We all come together and can share uh, our, uh, our challenges, uh, our, our wins, right? So sometimes it's hard to share kind of success stories and some of the frustrations that we have. I think self-awareness um, is extremely important. And, and there's times over the years that, you know, I, I think I, I didn't recognize the stress on occasion. Um, mm -hmm. And there's still, even if you do the best thing you can do uh, or take care of yourself, um, my stress release it releases grandchildren. Um, they can always make me smile and, and get my priorities straight. But, you know, there was a case uh, probably about five years ago, and I won't go into all the details why I had so much empathy for this individual. And, and I could not assist her, and I felt her pain. And I remember crying, going home that night, sitting at a stop sign, just sobbing, and looking over at the guy in the car beside me, looking at me like wondering what was wrong with me. And I felt her pain, but I couldn't help her. She, she was wrong in this situation. Um, I understood what she was trying to accomplish, but I had no argument to make that she she should be given what she wanted um so yeah that's the hard thing yeah yeah, yeah. i mean you're still going to run into situations that that um are difficult well again i highlight the sentiments and echo that uh amazing work that you all do and i want to give my uh, appreciation and gratitude for your your strength by telling us about your vulnerabilities and the stories that you know, are part of your life. Um, then the interconnectedness from that, the people that you've helped or agencies you've dealt with. So I think this really highlights Ombuds Day because I, if correct me if I'm wrong there, Ken, because I, I, I know you are behind all of this. For Ombuds Day, the theme is exploring the options to resolve conflict together. And I think from hearing your story about the, the the receptionist to the teams to just everyone who is involved in in resolving this that you are working together to 
resolve this complex. Yeah, I, I have a, a question along these personal lines, which I, if oh, uh, sure. and Christy uh, would be comfortable uh, answering. Uh, a lot of times the person that we are, we bring something of who we are as individuals to our job roles. And sometimes our job roles reflect back and transform us or uh, nudge us in certain ways. And I'm wondering if Kate and Christy could share with, with us, with everyone, I guess, uh, yeah. how your being in the ombuds role has affected you as a person and your uh, what you bring to others outside of work. As an ombudsman, I've had to um, limit, um, I would say, relationships with individuals who work for government agencies. Um, again, just because we need to have that impartiality and 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 not be biased. Um, and and I, I think from that perspective, being an ombudsman um, has actually made me a, a little more um, isolated. On the other hand, um, I think in the last 20 plus years, um, I've either been legal guardian or um, power of attorney for five elderly individuals. And I think um, when those situations presented themselves, um, I agreed to do that because being an ombudsman, I, it's helped me realize how many people don't have anybody and need just a little bit of assistance um, to get them to get them through the day, to get them to the next day. Just just somebody to help them, to guide them through the paperwork and the bureaucracy. Um, you know, I think I think it has provided an opportunity. So I had my first management position when I was still in my twenties, and I had no clue what I was doing, and certainly lacked the the tools that I think I have now and I I do think that in this role I have been able to con to continue to refine that and to be more open I think more open to new ways of doing things and to encouraging people to be creative about finding solutions to things you know I started as an attorney as an advocate um, my policymaking role um, included an advocacy component for folks who experience behavioral health um, conditions and disabilities. Um, and sometimes when you're an advocate, you're so focused on what you want that you're not able to think beyond that to other options. And I think the role of the ombudsman, because I'm not an advocate. Um, oh, and just to advocate, be clear, because we're talking an advocate. about advocate, what advocate role is this now that you, just for this <laughs> yeah. distinction. Uh, well, I mean, I'm not an advocate as an ombudsman, whereas an attorney, you are. And so um, I think now it actually creates more space for me to be more creative about um, ways to, to, to resolve things because I'm not advocating for anything other than better government. Um, and so I, I think it has allowed me to be more creative in all the aspects of my professional life. Um, and, and I think the other thing is, is um, an ombudsman at this level has to be strictly nonpartisan. And it is surprising how much that changes your participation in public life. Mm -hmm. And so it has um, allowed slash pushed me into finding new ways to be active in my community. Um, and, and they're all very valuable. And I got a dog. 
um, which I <laughs> never could have had before because I was always on the road. Um, and so I think that's probably the best thing is I got it. Thanks, Katie, well, Christy. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll share with you. Thank you for uh, sharing those personal uh, the side. I mean, I, I, hearing you talk about it, Kate, uh, I, I just realized that I do the same thing. So uh, in conversations with my wife, sometimes we're not getting something from the school system for, for our kids. And she wants me to be like riled up and angry and, and the advocate for my kids. And I'm more of the, hey, let's try to find a path forward. I'd like to be, you know, let's work with both, you know, see both sides. And so uh, I can see where sometimes uh, bringing some of the ombudsmen to your personal life is sometimes not aligned with what your family or the people around you might <laughs> always want, right? They want you to be on their side and they want you to push and demand and scream and yell. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's harder to make that transition from, you know, you're the neutral person to, okay, now I have to advocate for something. But going to your point, Ken, and Christy and Kate, again, that I think really highlights the ombudsman exploring the options to resolve conflict together. And that is going to be for Thursday, October 14th. You guys are excellent. Thank you for, for making those changes in our community and our nation. And we'll see you. Thank you, Christy Hirschman, Kate Burkhart, and Ken Skudalchek for sharing your stories and providing insight to the Ombuds profession on ABA resolutions. To learn more about Ombuds Day, Thursday, October 14th, please go to ombudsday.com. That is O-M-B-U-D-S-D-A-Y.com. Thank you for listening.